Welcome to Goiter Dialogues by the Goiter Institute Max Müller Bhavan New Delhi. Our podcast where we talk about art, culture, education and civil society with people from all walks of life. So get ready for some interesting conversations with some very interesting personalities hosted by Puneet Kaur. Hello, guten tag and welcome to Goethe Dialogues. Our guest today is Nivrithi Samtani. Nivrithi is the program lead at the Acumen Academy. Nivrithi, tell us first of all a little about the Acumen Academy. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, really exciting. Acumen Academy is actually a global program and we run uh, programs across many regions. One of them being India and I, I run the uh, program here. We do shorter programs, but our flagship program is a nine-month-long leadership development fellowship that we run for leaders in the social sector. Um, they could be from for-profit government or not-for-profit backgrounds, but as long as they're creating social impact at a significant level, uh, you know, we'd love to have them in our program uh, to to develop their personal and professional leadership. Great, that sounds good. You come this far to head the India program of the Acumen Academy, but your journey started elsewhere in the field of education, if I'm not mistaken. And when we talk, yeah. when we talk education, I'd like to go back to where you started as your education. After a few years in Delhi, you are an alumni of the Muir College Ajmer, Muir College for Girls. Yes. Uh, tell us something about your years at Muir College. What was it like to be in a boarding school away from home at a young age? Yeah, I, I actually, for you? I joined at the age of eight, which now seems very young, but I think I was really ready to go. Um, I love boarding school. I think uh, easily the best nine years of my life. And I think uh, it led to some of the closest and deepest friendships I still cherish uh, even now. Um, I think it was, you know, a great mix of of being protected um, you know, from maybe a more difficult competitive outside world, as well as it it pushed us to, um, you know, be without our parents and deal with a lot of our own, uh, you know, academic, emotional problems, uh, you know, by ourselves or with our friends versus always depending on our parents. And I think it made me a very um, independent person, also someone who's confident of taking their own decisions because that's what we had to do every day. So, yeah. So it made you more independent and confident. But yeah. lots of people also say it takes you away from home. And uh, like considering that today we live in a world where after school you don't really go back home, uh, mm. you go to university, which is elsewhere, which happened in your case too. So that yeah. takes away those years of home, home, of, at home from you. So, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I, it definitely does. And and boarding school is a choice that I think, you know, both the parents and the, the child have to make together. And I think in our case, because I really wanted to go, you know, it wasn't forced on me. I was very excited um, having read books and having heard a lot of stories from other people. So it it never felt like a punishment to me. And And what I think my parents managed to do was keep in touch with me and come and meet me in school every two months, right? And that actually increased the quality of our relationship. So I think it's a it's definitely a careful balance uh, to to think through. Uh, but I think if the child wants to do it, I think then you know 
everything falls in place yeah that sounds yeah. that sounds right yes now quite obviously it was good for you because you were an icsc topper i remember <laughs> you got something like what 99% or 90 no 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 percent no. in your icsc no. board <laughs> <laughs> no, lesser than that. Ninety nine was still not that easy to get when I was in school. What did you get? Ninety eight point nine. Ninety six. Oh, that 96. bad. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you were uh, one of those toppers in the ICSC board. Now, a lot of people say you get those marks in any college is open for you. You can join anything in Delhi or anywhere in the country. But you chose to go and study in England after that. Mm. Uh, what did you go and study, and why did you shift to England? Tell us a little about that. Yeah, I actually did apply to DU as well, and I got through. Um, and I kept the UK as another option. Um, I I wanted to study psychology wherever I go, so I applied to psychology in DU as well, and psychology at the University of Exeter, where I went finally. Um, I think the decision was based a lot on what would help me grow at that point. and it felt like global exposure being independent uh living by myself learning about new cultures would just be uh you know something that would push me out of my comfort zone more uh and that's why i picked it and i think it was the right decision even though it was very hard the first year to move away from home i mean not to move away from home because i'd already been in boarding school but to move away from india you know and a lot of familiarity with that comes with the culture and the food and the way of living that we have here i think the first year was definitely hard but i think both in terms of you know my academic journey and i think what i was pushed to do whether it was writing papers or presenting in a certain way or being extremely professional in the way that i was made to think um i think both that as well as i think the exposure right like you just grow and you question yourself and you ask yourself what do you really believe in when you move far away from what you've known so mm-hmm. i think uh, in both those ways i think it was a very good decision what was the biggest challenge you faced culturally um there were so many actually but i think the f- the main one that i faced was that india is very collectivist uh in its outlook and i think the uk you know people grew up being very individual and independent in that sense and so uh in small things you know for the first 6 months i realized that oh like i don't have a friend who will walk with me to the market or i don't have a friend who will you know do xyz out of their way to just be with me which is how we were and i think yeah. it was also worse because i was in boarding school so we did everything together you know with friends versus you know if it didn't suit someone's time they wouldn't make the you know the effort and it it yeah. it almost seemed uh, strange to me that they wouldn't and it seemed very strange to them that i was asking they were like of course <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. so i think yeah it it um you know by the second year i got more used to it and i realized mm-hmm. uh you know that it's not right or wrong it's just different yeah 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 Okay, so you had your years in England. You didn't just do your graduation. You also did your post graduation in England. Then I did, and yeah. uh, many people would think, "No, that's the you know after this, Nipriti just stays on in England." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she's been away from home for so long. She was uh, in boarding, then she goes to England, spends five years there, but then you chose to return to India. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why? Actually, it was it's interesting because. Um, I 
almost from the first week or the first month that I was in the UK, I was pretty sure I would come back. Uh, I knew that I wanted to spend a significant amount of time abroad, but I knew that it wasn't going to be uh, all my life. And I think there were very clear reasons, uh, both related to family and culture and where I felt like home was. Um, but it was also related to what I felt that my larger like life purpose was and I know it sounds really weird to say that at age 19 but I always felt like I want to work in a place that is under-resourced so even when I wanted to do psychology I wanted to actually become a counselor uh you know and I thought yay the UK has so many counselors right but India like at that point it wasn't something that was as common so I really wanted to to come back. And I think that decision was very clear from, from very early on. So when you came back, you also chose to work in the social field, in the educational field. In fact, to be more precise, uh, you were in, uh, you were in, uh, you joined Teach for India. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was funny because I actually thought that I would end up being a counselor straight after my master's. And then I started asking myself, um, you know, do I want to uh, go into this? It seems like uh, at that point in time, counselors were much more popular for children in very elite schools. And I felt like, you know, I'm young. I, I can take a risk in my career. I've always wanted to work in the social sector. Let me try it out for a couple of years. And coincidentally, I came across Teach for India, you know, running a two-year fellowship. I thought, this is great. I don't think I'll be a teacher for life. But, you know, it didn't seem like they wanted me to be one either. So it just seemed like, yeah, two years, that sounds good. And then I'll, I'll go back into counseling. But I ended up staying at Teach for India for nine years, uh, not as a teacher, but uh, as, as various roles, whether that was in teacher training or program development and management and, and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I did start the two years as a teacher. Tell us a little more about Teach for India and what exactly did this fellowship look like? What did you have to do during the course of this fellowship? Yeah. Um, so at that point in time, actually, Teach for India was fairly new at uh, in India. Uh, it does have similar models across the globe as well. Um, basically, it's a two-year full-time fellowship where you become a full-time teacher in an under-resourced school. That could be a government school. It could be a low-income private school. Um, and you teach for two years, you teach the same set of kids. Uh, so I taught class two and class three, uh, the same set of kids. You were very young, <laughs> six and seven when I first started. So this is a huge shock uh, just to walk into that kind of a classroom. I think, um, I think initially what hit me was, you know, everything like physical, uh, which is, you know, the, this, it's so noisy. There's so much like, you know, there's so much to see. Uh, it's constantly, you know, changing. So I think it was very hectic physically. And then over time you get used to that. And then what starts to hit you is the, the exhaustion emotionally, because I think, you know, I got to see things and I got to hear kids stories about things which were very difficult that they were going through and you know over time when you develop a relationship with them and you sort of uh, are a part of their daily life um you know it it becomes hard to to 
to not be involved in what's going on at home with their families with their siblings uh with other teachers who come and teach them and things like that so so yeah i think it was definitely very challenging uh i i would say you know probably one of the times that i grew the most in my life because i think for the first time i had to deal with failure every day you know i don't think there's any other job than being a teacher that that you go into a classroom and especially in an under resourced classroom you know trying so hard to make kids learn and you know they don't because they're not used to the rigor that you're putting in front of them and i think for the first 6 months i must have come home and felt like every lesson didn't go well so uh you know i i think it it takes a certain amount of perseverance patience to just get back up the next day and go back into class but it required you also know that these kids came from a underprivileged milieu but it also yeah. required you to be a little more involved with them if i'm not mistaken this training also involved that you actually went and lived in a slum for some time yeah we did uh we went for visits very often during our training mm-hmm. and uh for one or two days we went and stayed at as well in their homes uh this was like a i mean it was an opt in it's not something you're forced to do but it's a highly recommended activity and and children are very excited to have you in their homes and you know i know a lot of my friends who went and helped their moms cook uh you know at home or you, it's not meant to be like a parent teacher meeting right it's meant mm-hmm. to be literally an an understanding of like a home and an understanding of how to bridge the difference and divide that you face of coming from possibly coming from a different uh, background to the children uh but yeah i think over time i've become more and more comfortable doing that and now i i'm still in touch with uh, a lot of my kids and i go and you know stay in their homes or uh you know go and have meals in their homes all the time uh and and yeah their parents are always in touch uh, oh. as well as the kids so it's it's become a very comfortable relationship now well that's a huge step no from mayo to these under underprivileged schools Uh, and i think kudos to you for having transcended that i think that's uh, that's really great um now that you have worked you've been to an elite school i think i can safely say mayo is one of those elite schools definitely in india not one of the elite yeah. schools in india <laughs> i'm sure mayo i'd say the most elite school <laughs> and then worked in these underprivileged schools which are even small private schools but very underfunded uh, mm. slums etc now uh, where do you think our education system is failing students especially the ones who don't have access to our more uh, elitist schools the private yeah. schools i mean on so many levels mm. but i think you know it's very easy to talk about infrastructure and uh, you know curriculum and things like that i think the primary way that we're failing our kids is just by not expecting them to do better Mm. i think you know why do teachers not you know come to 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 class i don't know if you know this but like on any given day 33% of government school teachers are absent in class they just don't you know, turn up mm. yeah because there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lack of motivation that they feel that oh you know this isn't going anywhere my hard work isn't going to translate into children achieving right or if you think about um, I remember hearing a talk by Atishi Parlena the the person who deals with education in in Delhi 
and she said that you know although the first thing they did was clean toilets and ensure that government schools were at least you know infrastructurally equipped um one of the things they kept hearing back is that oh these kids won't you know don't need this level of infrastructure you know these kids don't need a swimming pool in their school uh you know and and i think it's it's that mindset really that holds us back from giving all uh from expecting that our children wherever they come from they deserve everything mm. so so i think once we shift that in our heads uh i think it was a the the two year fellowship for me was really a process of doing that every time i felt like oh you know this isn't something that my kids would be able to do i had to ask myself and say you know why am i thinking that way and okay maybe they haven't had the exposure so far but you know can i can i give it to them and can i help them make those steps forward so that they would be able to access um access something which they haven't been able to before so if the effort was made if not all at least some percentage of students would do better and would have a better future so if i understand you correctly it's basically a change in the teachers mindset and maybe in the teacher education programs that we have that is needed i mean that would be where i would place my biggest bets oh. uh for sure but also i think just overall shifting a narrative in our country around how much is okay i mean what standards are okay just yeah. define that a little better for me i haven't really understood you there yeah i think you know we're okay when we cross a slum we're okay when we cross a government school and it doesn't look like the school that our children go to and how how can we be like that you know how so can we be talking okay? about a greater change in society as such right i think so, so yeah let's let's stick to the education system now we can't change society so fast and how can we change the education system so fast yeah. but within the given parameters that we have that we say one step which could be taken is that teacher education sensitivity to students needs students ambition students aspirations is what is needed plus of course infrastructural support as well definitely i think i think it flows down from that certain mindset that a teacher or a principal has right as soon as they feel like this is something that children deserve then it goes into you know how you teach in class it goes into you know the kind of infrastructure you provide it goes into the exposure opportunities that kids get i've seen government school principals who you know they'll participate in every exposure activity that the government has you know whether it's a kala niketan or sports or everything and there are some schools that don't participate in anything and i think it goes down back to that you know the ambition of the of the principal um so i think yeah just you know um so the school, getting so so secondly would you say it's the school leaders who make a difference definitely i think the school leaders are a big key lever of change uh that i've seen and and you know inspiring school leaders turn a school around even a government school even a government school yeah i've seen actually really inspiring government schools now that gives heart that maybe somewhere some certain principals are doing a better job and the kids are doing better for it now in this whole scenario we've talked about it very generally uh do you think the girl child has even even raw deal than the boys undoubtedly i think there isn't even a question about that and that's on many levels i mean it starts from things like girls toilets not being as present uh in schools as boys toilets and because of that you know as soon as a girl starts menstruating they aren't allowed to go back to school or they feel ashamed you know so they'll miss like seven 
days of a month in school which is crazy yeah. you know any teacher would know that um as well as you know uh mindsets around girls education at home and you know how much a girl should learn so for example uh, we would find that our our government schools are full of girls you know but all their brothers go to private schools oh so it seemed like the parents had the money but you know they just didn't feel like investing it um in in a girls education yeah because they felt chalo at least we're sending them to school so we'll send them for free and the boys go to a private school the boys go to a private school and the boys when they return home are not expected to pitch in as much as the girls are expected to no they're not and the other thing that you know a lot of the kids i used to work with uh and then they still say is that you know their movement out of the house is accounted for minute by minute but their brothers can leave the house for 6 hours at end and you know not be asked where they're going who they're going with what they're doing you know and it it does end up that our boys are actually um you know they have almost more difficult life paths because of that you know because of the lack of monitoring they get into bad company they get into you know alcoholism and drugs much earlier like all of those things actually even lower like the outcomes for boys but but the expectations are so different that i think the girls end up feeling very unsupported um yeah and even if they have to go out for for a competition or something like that you know there's a lot more uh i mean i've had to do it a lot more conversation negotiation with the parents than you know for the boys are there differences within the country in this as has to how government schools function how girls are treated etc um or do you think uh, like maybe the north is better or the south is better or certain parts certain states have done a better job there i mean certain states have really done a much better job i think in the last few years delhi's been doing phenomenally well um otherwise i've been to you know chennai which has been really great as well their commissioner and everyone is very invested in education i think there are definitely regional differences so rural urban is always you know one one divide that you would see um and yet within the states that i visited i haven't visited you know all for sure but uh, amongst the 10 to 15 that i've seen i think the most um i think uh kashmir was definitely one of the harder ones uh because of the amount of school closure and things like that uh you know there was there was a lot less school days that children were um going to school and the other one was actually i i visited uh, some districts in manipur which were you know really far flung um almost at the end of the country uh is a district called kamjong and uh, i think what what disturbed me a lot was you know the kids are really smart and the infrastructure and stuff wasn't bad but it literally it boils down to a lot of corruption in the system where the teachers wouldn't come to school you know and they would ask someone else to be in their place uh and proxy and sign, teachers it's, proxy it's teachers exactly i heard of this concept for the first time yeah. and it was very disturbing to see that they weren't not they weren't just not in the school they were not in the state like they were those teachers were not in manipur so i think um that's that's something that shook me up a lot uh to just fairly of, common yeah which is so unfortunate um but yeah but i think what is uh been interesting is to see that 
in every space i did find at least one teacher or one principal that was doing something very different uh, than what was expected you know or, or that the bar was much higher for them then this whole scenario there is the state and there are there are the students parents these are the actors mm. what do ngos bring to the table here yeah i think ngos um traditionally have been a lot more of the organizing and demand side ngos you know where they would raise awareness about the issues and get people to collectivize and sort of raise their voice i think recently there's also been a second role that ngos have started to play which is sort of the supply side right which is to envision what a model could look like within a a difficult space and if it works to see which parts of that can be adopted by the government or by other players and see you know what can be uh, scaled up and leveraged so i think those are the two ways in which i primarily see uh, ngos you know playing a significant role in education do you think they're already playing a role a significant role i think so i think you can't discount the role let's say pratham has played Mm-hmm. um in the education space i think by releasing the asar report uh you know 10 years 15 years continuously i think they've brought about uh you know the the conversation on learning outcomes whereas you know the sarva shiksha abhiyan and all of these were very focused on getting the inputs right which is also very important and getting kids into school right and now we have a 97% enrollment rate in schools which is fabulous right however like only 10 to 15% actually reach class 12 and that's disturbing right but to understand that it's actually teacher motivation learning outcomes all of those ingredients that you know keep kids in school and uh, i i definitely think the asar and and pratham has had a massive role to play uh you know in in just bringing the conversation back year on year but there have there has been an improvement as per these asar reports that we've been seeing coming out of pratham pratham yeah a uh, a slight uh hmm. increase i think it was getting better and then the pandemic has made things far worse again hmm. uh, especially for younger kids who have found it very difficult to catch up on you know uh any learning outcomes and i think they've actually gone back a couple yeah. of years Yeah. yeah yeah so there has just been a very slight improvement as far as as output is concerned the inputs yeah. have improved a lot but the outputs still leave a lot to be uh, desired, desired uh, yeah. as these asa reports uh, have shown yeah yeah um now as you said we can the government has its way of working and uh, the ngos do play a part as you said and a lot of young people are kind of driven to say i want to do something for education in my country and i would like to join an ngo like that what would you advise a person like that which route to that which route to the take what path should they go down uh, to sort of start working for an ngo what does it require for you from you as a person after all it's so much easier to walk into a swanky corporate office and yeah. in air conditioned comfort and work and get a fairly good salary to take home um what does this ngo work take out of you who sh- who should say i'll put it differently if anybody wants to go for it what what should they reckon with yeah i think the first advice i would give to people is to intern you know not to jump into it with their eyes closed i think sometimes there's a very like you know glossy image which is painted around helping people 
you know in quotations mm-hmm. <laughs> um but i think it's very difficult it's physically extremely demanding it's mentally and emotionally extremely demanding and not everyone has the support uh you know to to deal with all of those things together mm-hmm. um and you know when you are faced with the fact that the work you do is probably going to show outcomes in 6 months a year sometimes 2 years down the line it's very hard to sort of motivate yourself to to do it every day so i would recommend that you try it in some form either through an internship or through a fellowship which has you know a sort of an expiry date so you know that you can put in the time and then you can decide at the end of that if that works for you or not um i think the second thing that people think is that oh i should become an expert in this area and then come back and help actually i don't think so because uh you know learning about something in a classroom or in a corporate setting is very different from experiencing it on ground and i think actually with some of the people who do the crossover too late you know i i think 4 5 even 10 years of experience sometimes we've seen it happening uh and it's been okay but but if you if you're too entrenched in an academic or a corporate sort of way of thinking it's actually very hard to sometimes transition uh into into a social sector space because you, you require certain uh ground experience you require certain perseverance and uh an understanding of people that i think you may not have the exposure to in other uh spaces so yeah so first get to know the field before you join and uh, or yeah. don't just jump in in the deep end no secondly one thing which has always hit me about the social sectors uh, especially in education is that there are more women than men who join it is Very that true it's true, yeah. true right where i feel uh, that the challenges for women are a lot more in the social sector uh, just looking at the hygiene conditions access to clean toilets safety, uh, safety when you travel to rural areas yeah uh but still it's always the women who seem to volunteer to do it or do it uh, is that uh, what is the reason for that let me ask you that i think there are two or three stereotypes that are in the social sector the first is that there isn't a, there isn't money and therefore women can take that risk monetarily more than men you mm. know so there is some kernel of truth in that in, in the sense of course for the same position you know you would earn maybe uh twice as much in in the corporate uh but it isn't like you know you're living on a pittance so i think you have to hedge your bets a little bit and see what you can manage um so you're trying to say I, it's not that badly paid as people think it's not that do. badly paid no mm. i think you have to find the right fit for you mm. uh you know there are a whole gamut of uh you know social sector organizations re- right from being extremely you know on ground in the grassroots in rural areas to you know all the way up to social sector consulting so you know you have to find what works for you both in terms of your skill set interest and you know what it pays um i think the second stereotype is that you know oh it's the ngo sector is like a side job so you know women can do it because they don't need to have a a full <laughs> a full term job um so i think that's that's something i don't want to get into we all know on both both ends that's uh, not the case and i think the third uh, stereotype is that uh, social sector requires a lot of you know people who care and people who work from the emotions in the heart and and oh women have more emotional uh, selves than men which again i think that's unfair to men i 
I've met so many extremely, you know, caring and emotional men. And I think, you know, uh, the men I've seen at Teach for India, as well as in the social sector overall, I think they continue to inspire and amaze. Of course, so do the women. But I think, uh, you know, they really uh, have broken that stereotype about, you know, uh, expressing themselves, doing things which are difficult, uh, being open and courageous in, in this kind of a space. So, yeah, I wish there wasn't such a gender divide. At the moment, I think there is. I think one of the main reasons is people do really think that uh, uh, the social sector does not pay. It's a situation mm. which has changed over the last few years, but there's not enough awareness there that Definitely. you don't really, this is not social service you're doing, yeah. where you go on your free time and uh, teach two hours in the school and come back and don't get anything for it. And yeah. you do it just only for yourself. It is a profession one can follow today with options for you later. Yeah, you have to have the right sure. mindset for it, but for you have sure. to have the right, right mindset for it. Now, this was as far as a career trajectory was concerned. But you on the side also try and do something on your own, isn't it, to help these kids in these underprivileged and understaffed and underfunded schools. Yeah. You have chosen some students uh, who you saw during the course of your work who did well, and you on a personal basis have collected money and are put, putting them through um, private schools, better schools, elitist yeah. schools. I'll just yeah. I'll continue to use that word because I think they are that. They are, yeah. They yeah. Are that. So uh, many people would argue that instead of putting five kids through a slightly more uh, through a school where you pay a high school fee, it would be better to reach out to more people and do something for them. What do you say to that? You know, I think it depends on how you think you can change the world. Um, and I think if you, you know, I, I don't disagree with that. I just think it's two different ways of, of making the world a better place. I think some people feel like you know, for a lot of people, a little more is enough. Um, and I think for me, how I've been thinking about it is that, you know, in my in my normal full-time job, that's what I do. Uh, but in my in my own personal life, can I deeply work with, I currently work with nine children. So can I deeply work with those nine children and families and ensure that, um, you know, there is a significant shift in their life trajectories. I think in the work that I do otherwise, you know, I try and shift strategy and, you know, outcomes and things like that for many, many people and, and students. But I don't get to see that happening, uh, you know, very closely. Basis, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think in this case, I, I did want to be, uh, you know, very deeply involved. And I think I wanted to test the idea uh, I know this sounds like an experiment, which it wasn't, but I wanted to test the idea that, you know, if these were really um, my children, would I have thought any different before sending them to these schools or these after-school activities or getting them the exposure that I have? And I, I don't think I would have. So basically, you're funding nine kids and giving them an education, which otherwise only an upper middle class household could afford. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I'm not funding them alone. We have lots yeah, of help, friends whatever. and you're, family you're, you're and collecting you know, funds, scholarship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're doing what you can to collect the money. Of course, not your personal funds, all of it, but you're kind yeah. of collecting money to help nine students go through a kind of education which otherwise would only be available to kids from a somewhat upper middle class background and yeah. not just for a year or two years, but right through their schooling. You started them off somewhere in class six. 
um for most of them they went in in class 3 and 4 that early okay that early and which is right after i finished teaching them right um and for a few of them you know their parents weren't convinced so it took a few more years and they went in in class 6 or 7 and you taking them right till class 12 they are currently in class 12 we're very scared because they're going <laughs> to appear for the boards in 6 months but uh, yeah we'll we'll hopefully i think there's also been a success story over there i heard one of the kids was going to england to study is that correct yeah um so she's uh, got a scholarship to uwc um uh, this wasn't a child that i'd supported right from the beginning it's someone who teach for india and many other uh, fellows also supported uh but uh, yeah together we sort of helped her and she's now got a scholarship and she's gone to wales she's going to wales on the scholarship 11. again and yeah. somebody who came from underprivileged underfunded school if yeah. their own devices would probably have been been a school dropout i think what is also amazing about this particular girl is that uh you know she comes from a muslim background and you know she is the first girl in her family and extended family to even finish school so i think you know the level of uh, negotiation she's had to have with her parents who were almost willing to pull her out of school every single year you know and for her to won the scholarship and now she's in the uk and she sent us photos of her by the sea i think it's just it's incredible uh for what what everyone has been able to do with her and for her grit and perseverance we've actually uh put together a film uh which is going to be uh, hopefully released in a few months uh where we've captured the stories of these children they've written the stories themselves and they've acted as themselves actually um through uh you know through the years of them interacting with this education system as well as their more high income or privileged peers and how that has been for them whether they faced uh, discrimination whether they've actually had really empowering friendships that they formed with some of the children uh, who are you know from more privileged backgrounds what has it been like for them and uh, yeah it's it's been a really interesting experience because the children not only scripted and acted but they also helped uh, to produce the film they were on the crew uh, so yeah it's it's been a really exciting journey for them as well Uh, one last question if there's one reform in education you could ask the government to do yeah we have a right to education we have all kinds of things or you think all the paperwork is actually done it's only the implementation which is going all wrong um this is going to be a little controversial because i've been thinking about it for a few years i think at some level we have to stop um differentiating between what government schools and private schools are allowed what are, what are government schools not allowed i think the the resources allocated in many different ways are different mm. right and so for example uh government schools get allocated land in a certain way and therefore they have bigger schools and private schools don't uh but on the opposite ends you know because government schools don't charge fees uh, and private schools do there's a higher accountability and so what is what has started to happen is that you know that's why we have elite schools you know parents can keep a private school in check and therefore because they have more control you know they uh veer towards those uh those schools but i i i think if if at some level there is 
some measure of equality in terms of you know how much fees is charged or how much the government pays for everybody's education i think parents would then feel accountable to any school that their children go to um which is which is what the government's trying to do with school management committees and things like that um in in government schools as well but i think uh it requires all of society to come together and hold our schools accountable and at the moment we've divided our schools by class like by economic class and i yeah, think government schools charging fees any how controversial most if you look right across the world most government schools are free and you know it's only in india or not just only in india but we are one of the countries mm. where we have a fairly large private school system and where fees charge and it's getting higher and higher and higher whereas yeah. the government schools are practically free of cost and when when something and that's also one of the reasons one often says when something is free of cost it has no value uh, yeah. but the fact remains the expense on each child in a government school is in no way less than an expense on a on a child in a private school so only Definitely. the money is being spent not so well let's put Definitely. it so apart from if you can't charge fees how do you change that do you think the school management committees and uh, things and uh, measures like that make a difference i think they do but i think that if you don't have parents who have the time you know if both parents are working if both parents are on daily wage labor sort of work and one day of of work missed is a problem you know they won't invest as much time in holding a school accountable and therefore you actually need to ensure that the population of children that come to a school is mixed you know uh we can't have schools that are divided by class how is that okay yeah but that you are i think asking for a bit much for the society is such you ask me for one reform <laughs> <laughs> if you'd ask me for five i would have given you some like you know easier ones as well but if i had to pick just one that's not that you're asking for social reform there and that's going to take centuries to come in a country like ours the people today still talk of caste so it's not yeah. a very practical thing you're asking for it's not going to happen is it um i don't think it is but i think if we start thinking about you know that is the end point hmm. for example smcs is a is an interesting way to to promote that same kind of accountability in in government schools hmm. so i think you know those innovations also come from you know what seems to be working in other spaces and therefore how can we get them back into government schools okay that's as i said a kind of utopian reform you're looking at that where society uh, the, these these classes in our society will not cease to exist but even if they become less 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 uh, uh come a little more permeable it would make a difference yeah. but that's a long way coming i feel i feel it's a long way coming i, I think, think the other way that uh, you know that reform has been very interestingly done is actually by the ews reservation and the mm. you know the section 121c of the rt yeah. which says 25% of people um you know of a classroom in a private school must be from uh, an economically weaker section of society again it's i think in implementation it's very difficult and again with mindsets of people it's hard but you know what it's meant to do is expose children from different backgrounds to each other and for them to realize we're not that different you know you which is which works? is what you i think it's working um i don't think it's working let's be mm -hmm. honest yeah. uh, but i think where parents and where schools have put in the effort to make it work i think there it's working
you know so we have some really great examples of schools in delhi uh, you know alcon international we have bluebells we have mothers international shivnader school uh, step by step so there are a few schools who have put in a lot of resources vasant valley is another one uh, you know to make classrooms inclusive and integrated and i think you know that's another way of starting to think of you know what are what are schools beyond divisions of class okay on that positive note <laughs> <laughs> if it can work in 10 schools always say then that's next step is it will work in 20 and then 40 and then 60 and somewhere there will be a change so on that positive note thank you very much nivruti it's been very very nice talking to you thank you for finding the time for us thank you so much thanks for having thank me thank you thank you for listening we hope you had an enjoyable experience catch you in the next episode